0: Hello and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Ambassador Yehuda Avner, former Israeli diplomat and advisor to five prime ministers. Mr. Avner, welcome to Profiles.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You were born in Manchester, England between the wars. What are your memories of growing up?
1: I was born in Manchester, a textile city uh, spewing forth, today you call it pollution, I don't think the word had, had yet been invented, from the coal mines of Lancashire. The factories were producing textiles and the city was black. I remember when I returned to Britain in the early 1980s as ambassador of Israel to the United Kingdom, I was astonished to see that the, the masonry does not have to be black. Uh, it had all been cleared up. But vividly, I remember a great orchestra called the Halle. I went part-time to the Manchester School of Music where I learned cello and and uh, uh, belonged to a, a youth orchestra. A great newspaper called the Manchester Guardian, edited by one C.P. Scott in my time. A great library called the Violin's Library. But uh, all these things I only discovered uh, in the, my later teens. Uh, as a kid, as a child. Manchester was a target for the, the German bombers because of its industrial base. So I went through World War II uh, almost as a fun experience. I'm a little embarrassed to say this today, but I had no idea of the carnage that was taking place just on the other side of the English Channel in Europe because when you were a youngster in those days first of all, school uh, was a very temperamental experience because the town was being bombed so often that many times school was cancelled and then we had the game of collecting shrapnel either from the German bombs or from the the shell casings of the anti-aircraft guns and uh, We used to trade shrapnel. And uh, there were also all kinds of air raid shelter pranks and so forth. So it was only after the war, when I was now the age of, what, uh, 15, 16, that the horrors of the war itself was brought home to me. brought home to me vividly when I was now 17 and the principal of our school was a first cousin of general montgomery uh, who was uh, the senior commander of the british forces against the time of the invasion uh, of of the continent by the allies and uh, he uh, got through whatever uh, influence he had, he organized for us a tour of what was still war-torn Europe. I'm speaking at the end of '45, beginning of 1946. And uh, one of the places that we visited was uh, Bergen-Belsen, the death camp Bergen-Belsen. That changed my whole life from beginning to end. I became a very angry young man. I was an angry young man because Europe was teeming with displaced persons. It stunk of death. And I, as a very conscious Jew, uh, was angry at my own fellow Britishers for slamming shut the doors of Palestine to these boat people who were desperately trying to get in. And so I decided I wanted to cast my lot with them.
0: Did you experience any extended amount of anti-Semitism growing up?
1: No. No. Oh, here and there. Uh, In school, I had an episode uh, in in the struggle for independence, uh, which is noble in the end triumphant uh, in every war of independence there are some very ugly scenes and one of them was the fact that martial law had been proclaimed by Britain in Palestine and if you were caught carrying a weapon then you were uh imprisoned and if you were caught firing a weapon then you went to the gallows and the the head of one of the underground militias menachem Begin, who eventually became a prime minister of israel he issued a warning gallows for gallows for every jew you're going to hang we're going to hang one of your soldiers and indeed he carried out his threat uh, two British sergeants were hanged. That put an end to capital punishment altogether. But I was then in school. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my fellow classmates, his father, was a in the British police force in Palestine. And he thumped me up. And our, our geography teacher, a fellow called Hogden, uh, he had no patience, indeed, he uh, had a hostility to anybody who was not of the Church of England <laughs> and uh, so it, uh, the fact that I was a Jew, I was a jew uh, I wouldn't call it anti-Semitism, but uh, as I one day I was being punched up by this young fellow his name was Godling, whose dad was a in the in the police force in Palestine. He came in he was a geography teacher and he said, what's going on here? What's going on here? And, and uh, Gosling, who had me on the floor, said uh, that I have near, uh my people had, were hanging Englishmen in Palestine and they're going to hang my father next. And uh, since Hoggan didn't like me very much because I wasn't Church of England, he said, is this true? Is this true? Your, your terrorists are going to, uh, hang our troops are there, our boys, our boys, and and uh, he uh, he was a, a great empire man. Uh, he, uh, you know, we had one of these uh, maps covering most of a wall. And most of them on the, of the globe of the map was painted in in red, which showed the extent of the British Empire, <laughs> and. Uh, he he i remember he frog marched me to the front of the class did mr Hogden and asked me to point out where palestine was and it was so small on the on the map I, but the end of it was i blurted out at him i was so angry i, I felt bullied I, I when he asked me uh, where did my parents live uh, where they actually came from that i s- said uh, a term, a Yiddish term. I said they come from a place called Gendred. Now, Gendred is Yiddish for go to hell. And he said, where precisely is it? And I said, well, it's in Romania. My mother had come from Romania. <laughs> and he said, what did you just say the name of it? I said, Gendred. <laughs> he said, oh, yes, I I, I recognize the, the Latin influence <laughs> in that term because uh, Romania... Uh, Is a Latin-based language. But I had my comeuppance on him that I had said to him, go to hell (laughs) (laughs) in Yiddish. When you decided
0: to go to Palestine, how did your family react?
1: My mother was a very strong Zionist, my father less so. I didn't know at the time my mother was dying of cancer. I'm the youngest of seven the baby of the family so to speak and uh, uh, she encouraged me very much to go and it was only subsequently that my siblings were to tell me that she encouraged me to go because she knew she was dying and indeed she died three weeks after i had left the country So that was uh, another factor. So if I take it all together, the headmaster of the school, whom I forgot to mention, he was a Hebraist, Church of England, a Hebraist, a Christian Zionist, and the home atmosphere, and the post-World War II atmosphere in general, and the policies of the British government of the day, uh, all that together took me on a boat, a little boat called the Aegean Star, full of Holocaust survivors, most of them without entry visas to Palestine. Uh, I had a British passport student visa, and most of them, upon arrival, were instantly interned and sent back to
0: Europe. You participated in the Israeli War of Independence, including the Siege of Jerusalem. What's your most vivid memory from that experience?
1: A girl called Esther. Uh, Esther came from London. I'd known her from London. She was older than me, maybe by four years. In retrospect, I call it an interesting experience because I discovered you can adjust yourself to anything. The body has this brilliance about it, it can do with less water, it can do with less food. Uh, It can't do with less hope, because the alternative to hope is despair, and uh, uh, despair, it uh, totally paralyzes a person. So there was always hope. Uh, Maybe it had something to do with my youth, it never occurred to me I would not survive. And so we were she and i we were volunteering for all kinds of things hazardous duties until she did a hazardous duty too far she volunteered for help in the protection of the jewish quarter within the old city anybody who knows jerusalem is familiar with the old city and that within the old city there's a jewish quarter and that was under siege, so this was an isolated siege, within the greatest siege of Jerusalem. And uh, she volunteered to go in there, and uh, she was killed. But she used to tell me about her younger sister in London, called Mimi. And uh, after the war, I returned to London to finish my studies. And I knocked on the door of Esther's parents, and Mimi opened the door. And that was 60 years ago. And we've all lived happily ever after. It's a
0: wonderful story. Thank you. You helped found a kibbutz. You lived there twice. What did you gain from that experience?
1: Idealism, the notion of revolutionizing oneself. I discovered that there is a classic term revolution, where you seek to change the world. Uh, this was an inner revolution, to seek you to change oneself. Uh, I wanted to get back to the soil. Uh, I wanted to feel in building this new country, ancient in its origins, but new in the fact that the Jewish people were returning to it, but not only to rebuild the country, but to be rebuilt. And a healthy nation has to be rooted to its soil, and hence I joined kibbutz, which was an agricultural. I don't use the word settlement because it has a connotation now which it didn't have then. It was a uh, an agricultural community in which we believed passionately, believed in the equality of human beings, and therefore we have to share everything. Uh, It's too glib to say this was communism or socialism. This was the creation of a new model of society where you made everything yourself. If you wanted bread, you had to grow it. If you wanted clothes, you had to weave it. Language. We restored Hebrew as our our daily vernacular. We worked by day, we sang and danced by night. So the kibbutz gave me uh, this tremendous sense of self-enrichment. You work your guts out. My hands, I still feel the blisters because we were in lower Galilee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. I don't know what it was like in the time of Jesus, but in my day, it was all rocks. <laughs> and in order to begin to plant, you had to clear these rocks and stones away. So for days and weeks and months, there was this back-breaking rock and stone clearing. But I guess I must have felt something what the Pilgrim Fathers felt here when they harvested that first harvest, because I can still remember the the planting of that first few fields after we cleared them away, and the initial shoots as the spring came, very exhilarating. But then there's an old kibbutz saying, a fellow leaves the kibbutz either because he has a wife or he hasn't a wife, and so after I'd gone back to London, done my studies and Mimi and I got married, came the inevitable. It's either the kibbutz or me. And since uh, our second child was on the way, <laughs> it was Mimi all the way <laughs> from then until now. You wound up in the first
0: in the Israeli Foreign Ministry working with then Foreign Minister Golda Meir.
1: How did you get there? So, you leave kibbutz with nothing but what you're wearing. <laughs> you don't leave with the goodwill of those you're leaving behind, because you're leaving them behind. Uh, you live in a ramshackle place in Jerusalem. It was axiomatic Jerusalem. It had to be Jerusalem, nothing else. Uh, I To this day, I can't conceive of living anywhere but in Jerusalem. It's a very exciting town, Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, uh, you you live on a pittance. But everybody was living on a pittance in those days. Uh, food was rations. Uh, there were no refrigerators. You had an icebox. Twice a week the ice man cometh. <laughs> There's no gas for or a gas stove, we call it paraffin, I don't know what the American equivalent is, a paraffin stove. And you brought up the kids, and you went to school. And I got this job as an assistant editor to a magazine that was dealing primarily with African affairs, of all things. I knew nothing about Africa. Uh, But... uh, you know, the when you have to, <laughs> you, you do. Uh, and this drew the attention of the a, a new division that was being established in the Foreign Service, in the Foreign Office, called the uh, Department for International Cooperation, that was established by Foreign Minister Goldemeyer. Goldemeyer... Who was the penultimate of, uh, of feminine, feminine audacity? Uh, feminism had not yet been invented, but she could hold her own any day against any man. <laughs> and uh, she conceived of this notion of developing a program. She called it uh, nation. Building Again, it was an expression that had not yet been invented, I don't think. Uh, I'm translating it from the Hebrew. And her idea was this. We are surrounded by Arab enemies. And she's going to leapfrog over them straight to Africa, whose geographies were then beginning to win independence from either the British or French colonial rule. It began with Ghana, I think, in 1958. Ghana was then called the Gold Coast. Uh, And the idea was that we send to the experts in every field that we had specialized in in our own nation building. And so these were agronomists and meteorologists and architects and engineers, anything. They went out to these new African societies and the idea was that they would work alongside the people there, not sit in air conditioned offices giving instructions. Uh, but to roll up their sleeves and mix their own sweat with the soil of these new countries. And uh, she was recruiting people, and since I had this rather shallow African experience with this magazine, uh, I sat for the examination, I passed, uh, and that's how I got into the foreign service.
0: A few years later, you... Signed on as the English language speechwriter for Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. So, how do you get from Africa to the Prime Minister's office?
1: Luck, all <laughs> oh, luck. The director of our department. He was asked by the Prime Minister Levi Eshkol to be his chef de bureau, and. Uh, Hardly had he moved over when he called me up and said, Yehuda, we need you here. And uh, I was then seconded from the Foreign Office to the Prime Minister's Bureau as the Prime Minister's English secretary and English speechwriter. And that's how it all began.
0: Okay, let's let's take a break um, here and listen to some music that Um, You have chosen um, a selection from Verdi's Requiem.
1: What do you like about that? Well, most recently, uh, Tel Aviv uh, celebrated its centenary. And Tel Aviv is uh, twinned with Milan. And Milan's gift to Tel Aviv was to send over La Scala, its orchestra, and uh, is choir, under the baton of Daniel Birenbaum, who's an Israeli originally, in uh, the Tel Aviv Major Park, which brought together over 400,000 people. And I was one of them. And I'd always loved Verdi's Requiem. Uh, it touched something in my soul. But to hear it that night under, under the starlit skies of Tel Aviv, Daniel Birenbaum La Scala. And I thought your listeners might enjoy it too. <laughs>
0: That was music from Verdi's Requiem, chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Yehuda Avner, the author of Presidents and Prime Ministers, An Insider's View of American-Israeli Relations. You're listening to Profiles on
2: WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: You mentioned, or we talked about, how you became um, part of Levy Eshkol's um, office as prime minister. So that meant... You experienced 1967, the Six-Day War. Um, Yes. What did you see happening that you hadn't expected?
1: I think what I saw happening was the possible destruction of the State of Israel. It was a rather terrifying experience to be sitting in the vicinity of the Prime Minister, who was also Minister of Defense, being pressed... To embark upon a preemptive attack, as the Egyptian army, under uh, uh, Abdul Nasser, president of Egypt, and the Syrian army, uh, and uh, the Jordanian army, all on the Iraqis, all assembling in almost Napoleonic array. Of tanks and of planes and of troops. And there we were, we were hardly a population of two and a half million. And I'm talking here of a population surrounded by 300 million. A population larger than the United States, a landmass from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean larger than the United States. All baying and screaming the same words. Throw the Jews into the sea. And uh, one day, it was a Tuesday, I was with the Prime Minister when he got intelligence information that gas units had been introduced by the Egyptian army. Uh, the Egyptians had used gas before in the Yemen, in the war they'd fought in the Yemen. And we had no gas masks. The country had no gas masks. And that's when I saw my Prime Minister, Levi go pale, go white. It didn't break, He didn't snap. But he asked to immediately connect him to our Foreign Minister, Abu Iban, who was in Washington about to meet with President Johnson. And President Johnson was desperately trying to find a way to put a stop to all this by putting together an f- international flotilla. Why an international flotilla? Because there are straits in the Red Sea called the Straits of Tehran. And whoever blockades those straits, and the very narrow straits, blockades Israel's southern waters. And so uh, President Johnson was trying to put together an international flotilla that would break that blockade and thereby prevent war. Because this is, was a true cow's belly for war. And uh, he didn't succeed. And so what do you do with your own children? Where do you put them? We're a very, very small country. So it's not only that you are threatened on every side. You're outplayed, you're outgunned, you're outmanned, you're outtanked, you're out everything. Uh, the president of the United States cannot even put together a some sort of a solution to prevent what was going to be an imminent invasion. Well, it was all over in six days. Because our air Force, it took the initiative preemptively, destroying all the Arab air forces around us. And so we immediately had command of the skies. And uh, six days later, as I say, we were in the Sinai, we were on the West Bank, we were on the Golan Heights. We had good reason to say our prayers of Thanksgiving, but then we found ourselves saddled with a whole new set of problems which we are still living to this day. Two
0: years later, you came to the United States with the then-new Ambassador Yitzhak Rabin. This was a time of Kissinger and yes. Nixon? Well,
1: Kissinger must- then was the, was the head of the National Security Council of Richard Nixon. Rabin had been Chief of Staff during the Six-Day War. America was getting ever more deeply involved in the escalating war in Vietnam. And uh, Rabin who was a very shy man. Uh, you know, a simple, hello, how are you, he could, he could interpret <laughs> as a, an intrusion into his personal privacy. He was that shy. He had no small talk whatsoever. But he was a brilliant strategist, and he turned out to be a brilliant diplomat. As a matter of fact, I recall, in 19, the new year of 1972, Newsweek magazine crowned him as the ambassador of the year. Because uh, we worked out of a very small uh, embassy, but he had entree to everybody not least because he was a strategist and a soldier, and the Pentagon we made friends, many friends there. They, they, would, they would not consult with him, but they were interested in his views. And sometimes, in my presence once, a four-star general showed him a map of Vietnam, and uh, he asked a very simple question. He said, "Way here, way here, here, there, 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 there." Why do you think they're going to strike Viet Cong? So, Robin said, "There." He said, "Well, we think otherwise. We say here." Lo and behold, three days later, they struck there where Robin had said. And uh, allegedly, Kissinger gave hell to his generals. (laughs) (laughs) Why did he know you didn't, but? Rabin was an analyst. He had a very disciplined mind, a very structured mind. He was a great conceptualizer. He could take uh, 20 pieces of any one subject and reduce them down to the component parts are one, two, three, four. That's it. Let's do those four things and we will solve the problem. This is what I vividly recall of him. He eventually came back home. We'd become very close by this time. One of the reasons why we became close was because his English was very poor. And this was why I was chosen to work very closely with him because of my command of the language. And um, he came home. By this time... The Yom Kippur War of 1973 had broken out under the premiership of Golda Meir. This old woman with craggy features who knew nothing of things military, but who turned out to be a great war leader. But since Rabin had not been in any way involved in the Yom Kippur War, a war which we were taken totally by surprise by the Egyptians and the Syrians, and whose first days our forces were reeling and bleeding and were retreating. Uh, eventually there was a tremendous American airlift and the tables were turned and we pushed the enemy back and but since Rabin had been in no way involved in the and they the utter disaster of not predicting that there would be a surprise attack of the war. And since he had this uh, very successful American experience, this combination of having himself been a successful soldier in the Six-Day War, and having the experience of Washington so successfully as he had, he became the natural candidate for the premiership when Mrs. Meir resigned as a consequence of the Yom Kippur War. In your book, you lavish special
0: attention on your service to Menachem Begin, whom you've already mentioned um, earlier in this program. Begin is somebody who was often criticized in the West um, for having been a member of a terrorist group. What attracted you to him?
1: Well, here we are in 2012. You're asking me a question about the peacemaker of Israel as Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who is still being described as a terrorist way back in the 1940s. Isn't that amazing? What attracted me to him? Well, first of all, I was gratified that uh, I I was a a little attracted to him, because uh, he loved the English language. He learned English in the underground, listening to the BBC. Uh, To him, that was a gold standard of English language reporting, and uh, he loved Shakespeare. And when he offered me the job after he had won the elections in 1977, uh, these elections were important because it was for the very first time in the history of Israel that we'd had an actual change of administration throughout all the years. The leadership, the natural leadership almost of the country, was labor, a watered-down version of socialism. And this was the first time that the opposition now was assuming the premiership under Begin. And Begin was a, a fierce parliamentarian. He loved the Knesset. He loved to make speeches. He loved to write. He loved oratory. And since much of my work with his predecessors, By this time, I'd worked for Levi Eshkol, for Golda Meir, and for Yisraq Rabin. He invited me to continue working with him. And on that very first day, when you have that very first conversation, the kind of conversation that can only happen once, the kind of conversation in which you ask the new Prime Minister, what do you want to do? And then he espouses his credo of what he wants to do. And the very first thing he told me was, I want to make peace with Egypt, which is the largest, the most powerful, the most influential of all the Arab countries. And he invited me to be a part of that process. That was exciting. But then, there's something else I found. Uh, so attractive about being, I am a, a believing Jew, and he was a believing Jew. All his predecessors, whom I'd worked with loyally, and whom I had the greatest admiration, they were agnostics. And this was a man of the old school. And uh, that was a very refreshing experience. Uh, he was a something of a scholar of the Bible. I'm a very minor scholar of the Bible. So taken altogether, I can but scoff and laugh at the word terrorist when I think of him as a freedom fighter who uh, remained loyal with the life of democratic politics it is very difficult to move from a military underground into the life of a democratic policies when you accept the verdict of the majority and he did overnight he became the head of the opposition he called himself the loyal opposition and he lost nine elections until finally, in 1977, he became the prime minister. That was pretty high drama for a fellow like me. someone else
0: who has a, two kinds of reputation, Jimmy Carter is sometimes said to have been an ineffective president, and yet somehow he was involved in um, helping Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat come together. You, had an opportunity to observe some of that I interaction.
1: Did I did indeed. There's an ambivalence today uh, about the name Jimmy Carter. He's not very kind or patient with us in the sense uh, we do not feel that he is able to empathize with the dilemmas that face us. But there's something we shall be very grateful to him. And that was the fact that he devoted 13 days and nights at Camp David, having brought Prime Minister Menachem Begin and President Anwar Sadat together. Uh, And he dedicated himself to the small print of a very, very complex peace and understanding after 30 years of war. There had never been a war against us, which Egypt had not been the one to start, and then the others followed, and the war had never ended without Egypt being the first to pull out, and then the others followed. Jimmy Carter played a very important role in bringing these two antagonists together, out of which came what's the famous Camp David Agreement, And ultimately, after that, the peace treaty.
0: Since we've mentioned American presidents, um, what were your thoughts on Ronald Reagan?
1: He was one of the nicest men I'd ever met. I'm speaking, uh, you know, with all the shallow authority of one who had met with five presidents. I say shallow authority because I never met one of them in my own right, but also as an aide to the prime minister of the day. Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, a middling film star, had a natural sympathy, understanding for Israel. He cared deeply about Israel. He had this extraordinarily strange habit that when he would meet the Prime Minister one-on-one, one, he read from cue cards. And we couldn't understand it at first. Our initial thinking was that his aides don't trust him, that they have to write out for him. He doesn't trust himself. He needs cue. Uh, cure. The fact is... I'm not going to pretend to fully understand why to this day he used cue cards, but when he went from the macro to the micro, from the big scene of American interests and strategy, which he often read, to the small scene of immediate decision-making, he was the man in charge. He was the decision-maker. He was surrounded by some people... Begin liked and some people he didn't like. He liked uh, the Secretary of State Alexander Haig very much. He didn't like the Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger very much. Those two, uh, they represented such different worlds, one wit said that Caspar Weinberger, years beforehand, had uh, stood for election to be the attorney general of California, but he lost because the Jews knew he wasn't Jewish and the non-Jews thought he was. (laughs) In
0: 1983, you became ambassador to to Great Britain. replacing a man who had been gravely wounded by Arab guerrillas. For you, I guess, it must have been a kind of going home. How did it feel to to come back as ambassador to the country where you had once lived?
1: Well, when I presented my credentials to the Queen, she said to me rather quizzically, I quote I do believe this is the very first time I've ever received credentials from a foreign ambassador born in this country. How did you manage that? And I, having anticipated the question, had prepared a rather high minded response saying, Your Majesty, though born in this country physically, I was given birth in Jerusalem spiritually. To which she said, Were you really? And I stupidly went on to say, yes, from whence my ancestors were exiled by Roman legions 2,000 years ago, to which she said, how dreadful. And she began to talk about the weather. Now, what could she possibly understand of the dreams of a 17, 18-year-old boy in Manchester whose sole ambition was to drive her majesty's forces (laughs) out of the country, Uh, and establish our own independence, and then return 30-odd years later to the country of my birth, bearing the credentials of the country of my birthright. Uh, I didn't really feel that I was, quote-unquote, going home again. I was representing the government and people of Israel. I lived by that time most of my life there. I'd absorb this culture. And when you're in a representative capacity on behalf of that government and people, you have the enormous advantage in not only understanding the language, but its delicate nuances. And who knows better than you the delicate nuances of English? You understand the body language because you were brought up with it. You learn how to read eyes. And that was a big advantage, particularly in my dealings uh, with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who had a very favorable disposition towards her Jewish subjects. In fact, at one time, in my time, she had six uh, members of the Jewish faith in her cabinet. And uh, she was a small-town grocer's daughter from a place called Grantham. And here she was, the leader of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party, traditionally, the aristocracy of England. An aristocracy in England is not measured by money, how, how rich you are, but how much land you own. It was still the landed classes. And I remember on one occasion at a banquet in Hampton Court Palace, it was on the occasion of the Queen's birthday, sitting next to me was a lady with a very large Adam's apple, I recall, Uh, hair like hay, I recall, Uh, Oh, she must have been well into her 60s or 70s. But she was disgusted at the whole place of Hampton Court because that's where Henry VIII had misbehaved. (laughs) And she was recounting to me detail in great detail of the various mistresses of Henry VIII because just as the gossip of the day was Prince Charles was having an affair (laughs) with now the lady who who is his wife. Uh, And in the course of this, since I observed the kosher dietary laws, she was quite disgusted that uh, I I was eating. It looked identical to everybody else's, but somehow it looked different. So she began pouncing upon me and how uh, Margaret Thatcher's got all these Jews in her cabinet. To which I asked her, I was getting rather irritated, tell me, why does she have six Jews in her cabinet? To which her answer was, because she's most comfortable with the lower middle class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd had enough for the evening. <laughs> that was it.
0: <laughs> I, I wish we had more time to, to talk, but we are out of time. Um, we are at the conclusion of the conversation. Uh, Yehuda Avner, the former Israeli ambassador to Britain and advisor to a number of the country's prime ministers, has been our guest. Thank you for being here. Thank you. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. We close with music from The Trout. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in December of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.